If you will, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Isaiah chapter 9. That is our text again for this week and for next week as well. Isaiah chapter 9, we'll be looking this morning at verse 6, although I will be reading verses 1 through 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Let's hear now the word of the Lord. They writes, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. The yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot in the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this prophecy of the coming child and son, Lord the Messiah. Father, thank you that you have given us understanding long before his coming. How we can see even here in Isaiah's prophecy this reality of hope and joy and good news amidst a very dark and sinful world. Father, we do thank you for the gift of your grace through the sending of your Son to be our Redeemer, to be the light of the world, and to be our hope. Help us, Lord, now to understand him all the more. For our joy and for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. How many of you like your name? Amen, Mike. I'm glad you like your name. You're the only one, apparently, brother. Indeed. When you think about your name, parents take different approaches to naming their kids today. Typically, this is not always the case, but typically most parents will maybe go with what's popular in the culture of that day, what sounds good with the last name. Maybe there's a family connection of sorts that they cling to and want to kind of preserve in, in family. Rarely, and, and I could be wrong, and you could prove me wrong this morning, I'm sure, but rarely does naming children today have anything to do with the meaning embedded in it. 
You can find examples, I'm sure. Maybe some of you have been named or named your children for very specific purposes because it means this. But typically, today in our day and time, that's not the case, where it was much different in biblical times. Names or children were given a name because it had a meaning and a purpose in it. Didn't matter what it sounded like. That's quite obvious, isn't it? Many examples we could point to. In some ways, I've always had an issue with my name. Not that I dislike the name Adam, but I've always wondered why Christopher Adam. No one except one seminary professor has ever referred to me as Chris or Christopher. It's always been Adam, and I'm fine with that. I think Christopher it just takes more like on documents. You just, it's more to write. I've always wondered why name, give you two names and then go with your middle name. It was always... A challenge, first day of school, first week of school, where you've got to get your teacher hip on the fact that you go by Adam and not by Chris or Christopher. It's always a dreaded week of mine, first week of school. But I know my parents didn't name me Christopher Adam because it had a particular meaning. I don't think, maybe I could be wrong, but they've never told me that. My guess is it sounded good. And common name of the culture and time, and they went with Adam. But once I looked up the meanings of my names, I, I think... I might have opted to drop Adam. Adam's meaning, or the meaning of Adam, is man of dirt. Christopher, though, means Christ bearer. I mean, if I were going based on meaning, Christ bearer sounds so much better than man of the dirt or man of the ground. But all these years later, I'm still just that man of the ground. You know, names do say something. Maybe not so much in our culture today, but biblically speaking, a name was a statement. A name in Scripture, when a child was given a name, it was pregnant with meaning and impact and symbolism. It was a statement, a declaration of something. And that's exactly what we find here in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, as we walk through these four names. It would be given to this child, this son, the promised Messiah. Last week, we considered the name of God's promised deliverer. As we reflected upon his name, we looked at wonderful counselor, mighty God, as wonderful counselor, we know that he is endowed with supernatural wisdom, able to teach us and guide us in the way of truth and the way of salvation. As mighty God, he is the divine warrior who fights on behalf of his people. Today we further explore this child and we are given further insight about him from the remaining two names that we are given in this text. And whereas the previous two names, the names we looked at last week, highlighted the preservation and liberation of God's people, the two names we will consider today describe further the conditions that God's people will enjoy upon his coming. He is everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are the two points, if you will, that we're going to consider this morning. First of all, he is everlasting father. Now that name is perhaps confusing at first look, right? 
Sounds odd that Isaiah refers to this child to be born, a son to be given, as everlasting father. It's a little confusing, maybe. You just said he's a son, he's a child, now he's a father. It sounds off theologically as well, doesn't it? I mean, the orthodox understanding of God is that he is triune. He is a trinity. One God, three persons. And we know that this son is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, about Jesus, the son of God. Now, he's being referred to here as everlasting father. How can that be? We know that the eternal son of God has always been, that there was a time in which God became flesh and that man we know is Jesus, but it's the eternal son. He's always existed. Eternal son of God becomes flesh. The one this text is highlighting, the son, the child. But he is not the father, God the father. They are distinct There's an ancient heresy known as modalism, which states that God is one and that he manifests himself in three different ways over time. He's now the Father, and then now he's the Son, and now he's the Spirit. That's an error. I think Christians easily can can kind of fall into that error if you're not careful. Because the Trinity is somewhat a mystery to us and and beyond our full comprehension of understanding how God can be one and yet distinct three persons, but we know God is that, as Scripture reveals us. He is triune. There are three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and he eternally exists as three persons, each distinct, yet he is one God. It's a mystery. So we know from Isaiah 9, 6 that Isaiah is not confused here that The father is now becoming the son. No, that's not what he is saying. He's not saying that the son is the same exact person of the Godhead as the father. Just simple practical application. We would not pray, for example, thank you, Father, for dying on the cross for my sin. That would be an error. We would pray maybe, thank you, Father, for sending your son to die for my sins. Or thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to die. We wouldn't pray, Father, thank you for dying. Or thank you, Spirit, for dying for my sins. Neither the Father nor the Spirit died for your sins. The Son died for your sins. And so you see the distinction we make even in our Christian vocabulary and practical application of how we live life and understand. So we're not saying here that the Son that's being referred to in verse 6 is the same as the Father. That's, that meaning Father is not the same as God the Father is what I'm getting. I could have said that about 10 minutes ago, right? So then what does Isaiah mean? Here, when he refers to this son as everlasting father. We know the word everlasting has eternity in mind. Referring to the eternal or to eternity, everlasting, something that goes on forever. And then we have the, the, the term father here, and it's not so much a title of position as God the father, as it is pointing to the care and fatherly-like provision Jesus will bring his people. Some scholars have also pointed out that it could be a reference to the fact that he is the originator of eternity, the author of eternity. So father here meaning author. But, but I think while that may be true, and I think is true, certainly, 
biblically. I think what's behind this understanding here is the fatherly care that the son will have for eternity for his people. His care, his compassion is everlasting. I want us to consider a couple of things as we tease this out a little bit about how Jesus is the everlasting father. First of all, we we know that his presence will endure. His presence with us will endure forever. What this son would bring, his deliverance, his rule, his rescue, hope, light, is one that will be lasting. You know, when Israel had earthly kings, they would come and go just like earthly rulers do. Some would last a short period of time. Others would last maybe a little longer. And even those with long reigns would eventually come to an end and be replaced. Historically, the longest reigning monarch, I believe, was King Louis XIV of France. He ruled from 1643 to 1715, 72 years. Although Queen Elizabeth in England's not too far behind him. We'll see how the crown ends and see if she makes it that far. King Louis XIV died in 1715. He often referred to himself as the great. He made famous the statement, I am the state. His court was one of the most magnificent courts in all of Europe. And his funeral, equally spectacular. Story goes, as his body lay in state upon his death, He was laid in a golden coffin. Orders were given that the cathedral should be very dimly lit with only one candle set above his coffin to to dramatize his greatness. And it's interesting at the memorial, as thousands waited in hushed silence, then Bishop Mazelon, or Mazelon, began, the bishop began to speak. He makes his way up and begins to speak. And as he does, he slowly reaches down and he snuffs out the candle and said, Only God is great. You know, he may have been, Louis XIV, the greatest man in Europe for 72 years, but his earthly greatness was no more. The truth concerning Jesus is that his greatness, his presence, his his magnificence is lasting, it's eternal. His rule, his reign is unrivaled in that it has no end. We see that in verse 7 of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He is eternal. His reign is eternal. He holds eternity in his hand. And friends, that should give us great hope because we know that our lives are in his everlasting hands. We were made for eternity, as Ecclesiastes says. And we should live with eyes fixed upon eternity. But oftentimes we spend the majority of our time not thinking about eternity. We spend the majority of our time preparing for the coming week or the coming year or the next few years. Friends, the reality is that we belong to a Savior who will see you through the entirety of this life and into the next which will last forever. The blessing he will provide you is not just to get you through 2020. 
The promise and the blessing that we have as Jesus being the everlasting Father is that his presence and provision is given to you, not for this year, not for next year, not for the next 10, but forever. He is present to sustain and uphold you for that time. He came to save you, to support you, to strengthen you, and to prepare you for an eternal joy that is far greater and far more glorious than you and I will ever ever understand this side of it. So his presence will endure. We know that we serve one and we are redeemed by one, that this savior, this child, this son, this king, this prince, this ruler to come would, would come and he would indeed be present and he would indeed accomplish all that he did. And we know that the impact of that would remain with us forever. But not only that, his presence will encourage us. This name, Everlasting Father, is one that should root our hope and perspective in eternity, yes. Make us heavenly-minded, yes. But there's something else that we should understand about him being the Everlasting Father. A few things that this name highlights for us. Number one, it highlights his affection. Jesus' father-like nature is one that embodies compassion. Scriptures often speak to this. In Psalm 103, verse 13, we're told that as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Jesus, as we've seen throughout the gospel of Luke, as we've made our way through, making our way through that, that gospel, he models compassion throughout the course of his ministry. We know that when he saw the crowds, the scripture tells us that he looked upon them and he had compassion upon them, Matthew 9, 36. We know that a father is one who cares, who has compassion, or at least is supposed to, upon his children. Now for some, I realize that 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 has not been your earthly experience in an earthly father. For some, the word father conjures up dark images. Maybe you had a father that was absent or even abusive. And thus your experience of father has not been one of affection at all. And so to put affection with father is just even like an impossibility in your mind. Friend, I would just encourage you to understand though your experience may have been that in this world, we have one who is compassionate and gracious and kind and generous toward those he loves. When the Bible speaks of Jesus as everlasting father, it's speaking of the one who is perfect in his father-like care. Friend, no matter what you've experienced in this life, the compassion and care of Jesus will never fail you. Maybe Christmas is difficult because you feel alone. Maybe it's hard. Maybe there's struggle. Whatever the case may be, listen, no matter what you've experienced, no matter your current experience in this life, no matter what you're enduring in this world, understand that Jesus as our everlasting father is a statement that he is compassionate and caring and loving and kind towards us. Even the best of earthly fathers 
still pale well, uh, they fall way short compared to who the Lord is, to the way Jesus cares for you. For those who've had negative experiences, you, all you need to know is that Jesus will never harm you, nor will he abandon you. He is the everlasting Father. The love and support and care you will find in him is like no other. So it highlights his affection. The fact that he is everlasting Father is a declaration, is a statement that his care and his compassion and his kindness is for you and it lasts forever. He doesn't just give you compassion for a week and say, okay, that should be enough to get you up and get you going. No, he's present to be compassionate and kind and loving towards you and to sustain you and to uphold you and to strengthen you, not just today, not just tomorrow, not just next week, not just through the end of this whacked out year, but forever. He is present to extend grace and compassion and kindness. He loves you more than you could ever fathom. And this is why he came. Not only does it highlight his affection, it highlights our adoption. The ministry of Jesus is one that has eternal impact on us because of what it provides us. Listen to what Paul wrote in Galatians 4, verse 4 and following. Paul wrote, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Friends, this this was the purpose and mission of this child and this son that we see in verse six. The one who was everlasting father, he was born, he was given, to come and redeem us and to be everlasting father to us. His coming would mean that we are given a new family. Here's the reality. When sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, it meant that all of us became orphans. Spiritually speaking, all of us were orphans permanently separated from God because of sin. And the good news of Christmas is that God so loved us, even in our sin, that he was willing to send forth his son into the world so that through him we can be adopted as children of God and co-heirs with Christ. This child was born for that reason. We were permanently separated, and yet Jesus came to be the way by which we could be restored and reconciled, adopted. How does that come about? This is what John's, or Jesus says in John 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So maybe you're here today and you're thinking, maybe I'm still spiritually orphaned, separated from God. I see my sin for what it is, but I've never had this experience where I have put my hope in Christ. 
Friend, the good news of Christmas is that God so loved people just like you, is that he was willing to send his son into the world to be the way by which you could be adopted into God's family. Jesus comes and lives a life of perfect righteousness, and yet he dies on a cross, not because he was bad, but because you and I were bad, because you and I are sinners. And he dies upon the cross to bear the judgment and guilt for our sin. He takes it upon himself so that our sins can be forgiven. Friends, that is the good news. How do you become a child of God? How are you adopted into the family of God? But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, receive him, believe in his name, and you'll be adopted into his family. We do have a father, but it's interesting that that even the scripture talks about how Jesus comes to reveal the father to us and to extend the Father's care and compassion over us. So friends, as we think about how this highlights our adoption, there's two things very quickly. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, understand that you are still in that state of being a spiritual orphan. And our encouragement and urging to you today would be to receive Jesus Christ and be adopted into his everlasting family. If you want to talk more about what that means and, and what all that, that means in your life and, and how that really comes about and you, want, you have more questions, friends, please, we would love more than anything to talk with you about that. For you believers that are thinking through this, I think it just should lead us to praise God, that God in his kindness and grace, despite our utter wickedness, came for us and he adopted us into his family. We should rejoice. We should praise God for the gospel family that he has given us. We are adopted into a family and that means the compassionate fatherly care that comes from Christ is shared by our fellow siblings. Fatherly language is family language. And friends, you've heard me say time and time again, church is not something you go to. It is a family you belong to. It is not an event you attend. It is a seat at the table. Friends, this is something that we have been given by grace. You don't earn your way into the family. You you, you don't say, okay, I want to get into the family, so I've got to check all these boxes. The only box you need to check is, I'm a sinner. I can't get myself in, but Jesus can. And you trust in him. He is everlasting father. Number two, he is prince of peace. The one who is wonderful counselor, the one who is mighty God, the one who is everlasting father is also a prince. Language of royalty, authority, and power, a king. He is a prince of peace. Typically when we think of peace, we often have in our minds the absence of conflict, absence of war. And the Bible does speak in those terms regarding peace. But as we think about Jesus as our Prince of Peace, what is Isaiah saying? Several things that we need to understand about 
peace and what Jesus brings as the Prince of Peace. Number one, he brings us peace with God. And this is the most important one. Jesus is the embodiment of peace. He didn't didn't come like so many other rulers. He didn't come with trickery. He he didn't come with deception. He didn't come with, with, with war. In the, in, the, in the way we think about it. He came to triumph, but it, that triumph would ultimately come through an old rugged cross. And when we think of peace, we, we, we often think about that period of time that follows conflict or follows a war. We think of peacetime. Again, the absence of a conflict, whether that's a, 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 a conflict between nations or a conflict that's personal or a conflict with a virus, you know, we're, we're looking for peace from something, from a conflict. But the truth is, friends, that the, that the one conflict that exists that is far greater than all other conflicts, far greater than any human, national, or political conflict you can imagine, is the fact that we are in conflict with God. The Bible talks a lot about this conflict. Romans 5, verse 8, Paul says, but God shows his love for us in that while we, were yet, while we were yet sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Listen, I don't think people are used to using that kind of language. Enemies of God. Not only are we spiritually orphaned, we are enemies of God outside of Christ. This is what you were born into. You were born into this, this, this spiritual condition that has left you orphaned and has left you an enemy of the true and living God. That's true of everybody in the world. It's what we're born into. And we're just not used to that kind of language. But it's true. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have not put your hope in him for your redemption and salvation, not only are you still spiritually orphaned, you are an enemy of God. An enemy. And friend, if you are a believer then this was what you once were. And Jesus is the one who brought you, and friend, as an unbeliever, can bring you from being an enemy to being family. Stephen, I think, read earlier from Colossians 1, verse 19, where it says, for in him, in Jesus, in Christ, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, listen, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is the prince of peace. Excuse me. He's the prince of peace because he makes peace between us and God by dying for his enemies. Friends, the greatest peace deal in the world 
was not and will never be signed at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue or on the deck of an aircraft carrier. Thankful as we are for those things. The greatest peace deal in the world ever signed was signed in blood on a cross by a prince. Where he dies to take upon himself the judgment we deserved. Took the penalty. He dies in our place so that we can no longer be enemies of God. This is the good news. This is why we get all animated about Christmas. There are other good things about it, but, but this is the ultimate thing. God sending forth his son into the world so that he can bring his enemies and make them family. He's the prince of peace. Jesus certainly brings us peace in many other ways, but all the other ways that I'm about to, a couple of them I'm about to which I'm unpack very quickly, all these other ways that Jesus brings peace in our lives are fruit of this peace. If you don't have peace with God, then forget about these other things lasting. He's the Prince of Peace because he brings us into right fellowship with a holy God. He also brings us peace in many other ways. Number two, he brings us peace in our trials. All of us living in a fallen world will certainly endure hostility and conflict in various different ways. And yet Jesus is the Prince of Peace that stands in the midst of those conflicts, in the midst of those hostilities. He says in John 14, 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives to you, do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. As the, the world tries to encourage us <clears throat> to make all our troubles disappear or to mask them. But the peace Jesus gives, listen, don't get confused, the peace Jesus gives is not the eradication of trouble this side of heaven. You can get that in a prosperity gospel church, and it's wrong. The peace that Jesus gives is not the eradication of trouble this side of heaven. The peace he gives us is the calm assurance that he is sovereign and he is savior and he can be trusted despite the horrific circumstances that we might be in the midst of. He brings us peace in our trials. Number three, he brings us peace with others. The reconciling power of the gospel first and foremost, brings us into vertical peace with God. And that vertical peace is something that has great implication for all other earthly relationships. It should inform and it should shape all others. Today, it seems the world is intent on segregating us and dividing us into little camps and tribes, but that is not the way of Christ. The only thing that Christ would separate us from would be the world. But he brings us from all of our different backgrounds and all of our different experiences and all of our differences and he makes us one through the cross. And as Christians, we must long to demonstrate this oneness before a world that watches us, a world that is so driven by separation and division and hostility and conflict. We could just go on and on and on and how this is fleshed out in relationships, in politics, on and we could go. And sadly, at times, Christians are so divided that we don't look at all like we serve the Prince of Peace, but something or someone entirely different. This Prince of Peace came to give us peace with God, and that peace with God should shape and inform all other peace 
with others. And number four, he brings peace in eternity. To think of peace following a conflict or war is not entirely outside of the range and scope of this text. Here in Isaiah 9, back in verses 3 through 5 of Isaiah 9, we have imagery of a great battle with Israel coming out victorious. It's a metaphor of conquest that we see pointing to a future victory. Listen to how the Bible is describing. So remember, there's all of this darkness, there's all of this anguish and all of this gloom. Then this hope comes in chapter 9. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. What is that? What, what is he talking about? He says, you have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. A nation that's going from darkness and gloom and anguish to a nation marked with joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, the staff of his oppressor, or excuse me, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. This is, this is language describing conquest and victory. Verse 4 is language that we get from the Exodus as well as language that you would find from Gideon's victory at Midian in Judges 6. Both are used here to describe previous, referring back to previous victories that God brought his people in specific circumstances. Now they're being, being, being spoken of as assurance, but as metaphor to speak of a future victory that will be the Lord's as well for his people. And all of this will transpire with this promised child's birth. Not that everything listed here is going to happen in his earthly ministry, but ultimately all of this is the fruit of this coming child and son. It's a day of victory. It's a day where God's people will be victorious and God will be glorified. So God does bring us peace from conflict in eternity when he has the final word. You know, as you think about this past season or past year, it's been challenging. The virus that lurks, the political madness, for some it's been a season of intense grief. For some of you, it's been a year of blessing despite everything else going on. And regardless of what this year has brought you, be reminded that Christmas is a time for us to pause and remember and rejoice in the fact that the light has shone into the darkness. Hope has come. Names do have meaning. The name of this promised Messiah speaks volumes to each of us. He is our hope because he is wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is everlasting Father. He is Prince of Peace. As one pastor put it, Jesus was born in a day of political turmoil in which children were massacred, outcasts were oppressed, rulers were corrupt, and hope was absent. Yet heaven's light shone into the darkness. He is the same light we need, friends, 
to descend into our darkness today. And as the wonderful counselor, we need to remember that he has the wisest strategies. So let's follow him. As the mighty God, he is the one who defeats his enemies. So we must trust him. As the everlasting father, he takes full responsibility for us to adopt us and to care for us. So friends, let's rest in him. And as the prince of peace, he is the one who reconciles us while we were still his enemies. So let's welcome him. Friends, what a glorious, glorious savior and firm hope we have. Let's pray. Father, it is our joy that is increased when we consider a text like this. And we first want to thank you for giving it to us in writing so that we can look back to it time and time again. Lord, these ancient words are not words that grow old to our ears. but they are the foundation of our hope. And by your spirit, as you continue to work in our lives to, to, to remind us of what is true, Lord, it's a day like today that we come amidst all that's going on in our lives and in this world, and we come and we're reminded that we have one that cares for us more than we could ever care for ourselves. And we have a prince who united us to you because we were your enemies. Father, Christmas is a is a celebration of joy and hope and triumph because you are gracious to sinners. And your son is a glorious gift to all of us who are so undeserving. Thank you. Thank you for what you've given us. Thank you for the hope that we have to cling to. Thank you for the light that shines into our darkness. And thank you for this son, Father, that you gave for our sake so that we could be your sons and daughters. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.